the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Well, that's what the uh, that's what the press kit says, anyway. <laughs> Good afternoon. Welcome to the final day of. September and uh, boy, that's uh, good news. Nine months down and just three to go. And aside from squeezing a little election in the middle of the next uh, quarter here, uh, boy, aren't we all looking forward to burying 2020 as deep as we possibly can? Well, great to have you with us today. We've got a lot to talk about, including elections coming up in just a moment. We'll also have an update for you on what is tragically seeming to become an annual event here in California, at least of recent years, and that is the annual August-September fires. And uh, we've got another batch right now raging in Northern California that is wreaking pretty significant havoc. Last numbers I saw, um, almost, this is unfathomable that we could even reach these numbers, but almost 4 million acres have been destroyed. 26 major wildfires burning across the state as we speak, and sadly even significant loss of life. Not as much as a year or two with the uh, Tubbs fire, but one life is too many for something like that. So we'll get an update for you from Cal Fire. Scott McLean will join us later on in the program. Also, did you hear about the proposal by our dear governor, who is suggesting that the way to fix the California fires is not better forest management, it's not dealing with overgrowth, it's not greater penalties for people that start fires, not even the matter of putting more fire personnel out in key places so that we can get a jump on these things sooner. No, no, the answer given by our governor is we need to completely eliminate the internal combustion engine. As if somehow doing so in the state of California will clear the issue of greenhouse gases across the entire world. I guess he doesn't realize that California is connected to Oregon and, the, well, anyway, we'll, we'll leave the geography lesson for another day. What would California look like with no cars? We'll talk about that. Ronald Stein is going to join us. He's written a new book called Just Green Electricity, Helping Citizens Understand a World Without Fossil Fuels. That ought to be a doozy. I want to start before we talk to our first guest tonight by saying a hearty thank you from the bottom of my heart on behalf of not just those of us here at KFAX, but also the hundreds of children that you helped rescue from the brink of starvation over the last several days in our partnership with Cross 
International. And, and I know I say this with some frequency, but I'll say it again just because it needs to be said. And that is that we don't take lightly the sacrifice that you make and you're giving. We know that particularly now, not only with lots of demands on your resources, but maybe for your household, even limited resources because of COVID-19. And then in I step and say, well, we need to help in order to deal with people that are in a continent, a world away, and yet your heart for ministry and world missions really shines through yet once again. And I am pleased to say that in the last 24 hours, um, we have hit our goal. In fact, we've exceeded our goal in sponsorships of over 300 children now that have been rescued. And so I just want to say on behalf of all of them and our friends at Cross International, thank you, thank you, thank you. I know, again, it's a lot to ask, and I don't want you to think that we, we ever do so lightly, but uh, thrilled to be able to report that we had some listeners in our final appeal yesterday step up to the plate in a big way, and it helped push us over the top, and we met our goal. So, again, I thank you so much for your hard efforts. Hard effort, that seems to be kind of the watchword for 2020, doesn't it? Whether we're dealing with helping people in crises and worlds away or our own crises here in the United States or even closer to home here in the San Francisco Bay Area. One of the regions, of course, that's going to take some hard effort, and that is to make sure that you get out and vote on November the 3rd because there is so much at stake right now, so very much at stake. And we're going to spend some moments here talking about not just some of the ballot propositions, uh, but also talk about this key vacancy on the high court with the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg a week ago Friday. And we've invited Brian Johnston, who of course hosts Life Matters, heard Saturday mornings at 11 right here on KFAX. Brian, of course, is the Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. He is a former California Commissioner on Aging and um, has some insights in terms of who the candidate is that has been fo put forward by the president for uh, consideration, Amy Coney Barrett. So let's get some details. Brian Johnston, good to have you with us. Craig, great to be on with you again, always is with K-Fags. You've got great listeners. This, is, uh, this is something that I think a lot of folks thought, considered, thought possibly might happen, and, and now it has. And, and certainly um, I know that there was a long, arduous battle that Justice Ginsburg fought in dealing with her cancer diagnosis. Um, and, and in the end, as I say, she, she fought valiantly. Now with her passing, that has left open a seat on the high court. And the president officially announced last Saturday um, his appointment, his request for Senate conf confirmation of Justice Amy Barrett. Tell us a bit about her and this candidate. Well, I think the, the most important thing we want to look at, in looking at both her and her predecessor, they are opposites, quite literally. And I want listeners to know it isn't merely because Amy Coney Barrett is inclined to disagree with Roe and have a different worldview on that, whereas, you know, um, Mrs. Ginsburg actually has said, she had said she didn't quite like Roe exactly. Here's where the real difference is, but she definitely would have supported even more abortion rights 
under the rubric of feminist rights, under the fact that only women can have children, therefore you're bigoted to control women by denying them abortion. So it's the feminist worldview. But there's something much bigger, and I think it's very important. I'll mention, since you mentioned early, thank you. Uh, we've explored the philosophy of Mrs. Coney Barrett because it's the philosophy of Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas and of America's founders. And it's a philosophy that really most Christians should have a better grasp of. And that is this. What our founders said is they were going to build a foundation of laws based on the laws of nature and of nature's God, of self-evident truths. Now, if there is no natural law, it's a reference to natural law, that what is right and wrong, if you take the time to look at nature and think about it, your conscience will tell you right from wrong. And that's an assertion that the, the assertion of having a conscience, that every human being has a conscience, not everyone obeys their conscience, but that there is a spiritual quality to mankind, that's the premise of Western civilization, that we're more than merely animals. Now, the idea of natural law actually predates. Now, we know that Amy Coney Barrett uh, taught at Notre Dame. She's a Catholic. But this idea predates Catholicism, because God's creation predates Catholicism. Many, Cicero is probably the most famous Roman. He actually spoke about natural law at great length. By the way, he was a tremendous opponent of Julius Caesar, who seized raw power. And Cicero is, was one of the few that had to oppose him. But the concept of natural law is very, very important that God has revealed in nature. It's in Romans 1, Romans 1.20. He's revealed it to everyone, so without excuse. Now, on the other side, what we had in, in Mrs. Ginsburg was an assertion, yes, she was a feminist. We know that, and we know that's why she was made an icon by the culture. Now, the reason I'm going into this is that she may be gone. But I assure you, this ideology is very much in our culture, and it's all around you. And I have to tell you, elements of it have crept in to the church, to Christians' minds. And you have to dig through and make sure you don't get lured by it. We spent, in Life Matters, again, that was a half-hour program. I'm going to do it now and wrap this up. But the fact is, is that what Mrs. Ginsburg was asserting was that you could make up new laws based on cultural values. But she went further. If you read her decision, she had a, a decision that supported uh, non-traditional marriage, gay marriage, in where she talked about the fact that traditional marriage and even common law marriage must come to an end in order for society to progress to true equality. Well, that was a direct quote from Marx and Engels. And we need to recognize that what we have in Ginsburg was the reflection of a culture. She was taught that at university. And right now, that's what our universities are teaching, that you have to have fairness and equality. 
in marriage, unfortunately, the way traditionally what they teach is that makes a woman subservient. And for Marxists, traditional marriage is the number one oppressive institution that must be destroyed. That's a statement from Marx. So the fact that she says it from the high court and she is vaunted as a creative thinker, no. She was simply echoing the zeitgeist. She's echoing what is taught in every United States university uh, across this nation, with a handful of exceptions. That this is the spirit of the revolution, the spirit of culture change, the spirit of progress. We have to leave behind those old-fashioned things. Well, you know, the curious thing, too, that a lot of people sort of lose sight of, and that is to put this into the context of the times in which this decision was handed down. I mean, it, it was, I think, a 72 vote, all men. That's the first important uh, distinction, I think, to make here. And it came in the middle of the height of the controversies surrounding everything from the hippie movement to protests over the Vietnam War, um, all of that sort of churning at the same time at a point in which America was going through enormous cultural, moral changes, and yes, even changes within the church. So that, that setting, I think, is very telling as to sort of the gift, sadly, the product of that period of time. And now the challenge, of course, we have and looking back over the mistakes of 44-something years ago and saying, how do we correct this? Brian Johnston with us, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. We'll talk more about the candidate for the United States Supreme Court as Lifeline continues. Right now, though, we're going to get you a look at traffic, the latest at 518. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation with Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director of the National Right to Life Committee and, again, host of Life Matters, which comes your way every Saturday at 11 a.m. right here on KFAX. A unique position we find ourselves in, an opportunity for an appointment to the high court that uh, can have an impact, and I want to be careful to articulate this, can have an impact not just on issues that may come before the court related to life, but so many others that go to the core of matters foundational to our nation and the vision that our founding fathers had for this country. And and toward that end, you mentioned the fact, Brian, that uh, to be sure, um, Amy Barrett, if she is confirmed, would be replacing a member of the high court with whom she is clearly, ideologically speaking, the exact polar opposite of. But beyond that, uh, talk to me a bit about some of her unique qualifications. I think one of the things that she brings to the table that we don't often see very often in the high court, and that is the fact that she has a very strong background in academia, coming from both uh, Notre Dame Law School as well as Rhodes College. Yeah, it's really, she's so impressive, I can tell you, on so many levels. And uh, what I think is refreshing, this is a breakaway from the Ivy League. And uh, all of us culturally, especially out here in California, know that uh, there's a lot of people that control the levers of power, you might say the deep state back east. And a lot of the elite consider uh, if you didn't uh, go to school uh, 
east of the Hudson River, well, you're not truly educated, and uh, you must be part <laughs> of the elites. And so the the uh, the Ivy League breakaway is refreshing, and and there's a taste of reality to her that I really like. Uh, my wife and I were talking about her. I feel like she's an old friend of ours. That's the nature of her personality. And even that community, I am familiar with the people of praise. And it used to be called the Sword of the Spirit community. It's actually uh, not just Catholic, charismatic Catholic, but it was kind of a... Uh, it, it's much more evangelical than a typical Catholic church, I'll tell you that. Really amazing people. And look at her life, her, her children, her adopted children. Uh, the sweetness that her character brings is so refreshing. She's so unpretentious. Uh, you rarely see that. You rarely see that in a justice. And uh, I think it's just awesome. I think it's really awesome. Um, wow. Yeah, in terms of personality, well, that's not the most. C- could I just for a second, Craig, just change this? For a second, can I talk about the debate last night? Because the well, oh, yes, please. Pointed her. And the reason I bring that up, I'll be honest, I watched the debate, and, and uh, his personality is not why I support him. And the reason I say that is I think there was a lot of things. I, I wish I could have debated. I wish you could have debated for him. You would have done perhaps a better job. But he really, this man is so determined that he really is, you know, he gets fiery, and it, it can hurt his perception, but I want to remind you that we talked about this before. Abraham Lincoln, we have an incredible view of him from here, but at the time he was not popular. He did not even win his renomination for his second term from the Republicans. He was hated even by many Republicans who wanted to end the war. They agreed with him as, re- as Republicans. They didn't like slavery, but they didn't want the war to continue. And he was seen as pugnacious, but worse, he was seen as a goofball. And I think, if I'm a big fan of Lincoln, people who study his writing, he was probably the most brilliant president we've had. But he was perceived as a jokester, fool, and a rube. And they perceived him as a country bumpkin. And what he did is he just went with it, and his sense of humor were all these country stories, but he always had a dig to them. A lot of people didn't like him, and he did things that are still somewhat questionable in terms of how he used his authority, to be honest. But I think he was an incredible president. And again, I want to let you know, his personality wasn't the reason he was elected. And that's the case. This president has appointed not just Mrs. Barrett, but all of his appointments. And he's made it known, these, this is the worldview he wants to see. Constitutional worldview, again, which is based in natural law as opposed to basing law in passing opinion or a clever idea I came across. Well, and this goes to my point of of the impact of the sort of the the prevailing winds in the 1970s that was pushing for change and further liberalism and so forth. And so, uh, you know, as a result, instead of basing... Right, exactly. So instead of basing solid jurisprudence based on natural law and and the the uh, the history uh, and, and so forth, it was sort of whatever the whim of society happened to be at the time. And sadly, when you when you govern that way, and certainly when you when you deal with the law with that kind of approach, it can have pretty horrific effects, as we've now come to experience forty something years later deadly effects. And again, you mentioned our governor at the beginning of the call. You know, he'll come up with 
stuff that sounds cool. Well, this would be really cool. Why don't we do this? And since I have the power, I'm going to make this the law. I'll just do it, abracadabra. That does not follow the principles of our republic or of natural law. That's following the principles of raw power. And that's how throughout human history, when people make laws based on that, they always make mistakes. It is now. You said that's a good point. The winds of change were blowing in the 70s, but it is, it is a, a hellstrom right now in terms of what we see in the streets. And sadly, people's understanding of it. They don't understand why these people feel justified in what is basically domestic terrorism because they have this idea, just create change, and that's good. Progress. We're going to progress through this. Well, that's madness. And yet it's so common, and it's, people fail to realize the implications when they, the words sound nice. Again, I, I, I'm going to listen to your guess regarding the, the electric cars because you know, there's so much that's going on right now, and we in America, we're finally catching up. But common sense, you know, China, China has, has uh, hundreds of nuclear power plants. France has nuclear power plants. But the left says, no, that's an evil form of power. Well, it's one of the most economical. And despite all the bad hype, they create bad hype, and we were not supplying enough energy Thankfully, because of the culture and law change, we are uh, able to use oil. We're able now to hopefully we're going to get nuclear power back online, but the rest of the world uses it. It's well, and, you know, the, the irony to that point. America. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the irony to that point is that, you know, I, I understand all of the enthusiasm over clean automobiles, zero emissions. Isn't that fantastic? But at the end, of the end of the day, you have to burn something. You have to convert one product to another in order to create energy. Yes, the sun is an exception. Yes, the wind is an exception, but they're not available 24-7. And you need an awfully big car in order to put solar panels on the roof. So the short-sightedness, it's one thing to hope for something, it's another thing to see it from a practical standpoint. Hey, real quick, Brian, before my engineer says to me what Joe Biden said to the president last night, um, a quick word about information concerning voting, ballot propositions. I understand that resources are now fresh up and available at CaliforniaProLife.org. Tell me about it real quick. Yes, you want to find out uh, down the ballot, all the way down to your local school board. And by the way, that's where the progressives, that's where Planned Parenthood wants to be. They want to control your school board. So there's good candidates all the way down. We're posting those online at CaliforniaProLife.org, Election 2020, and we'll give you that information. But also on the ballots, we talked about that last time. There are 12 measures on the ballot. Our board met and, and went over these six of them directly impinge on the life issue, and you can see what they are. They are basically all no's, and it's because of the power of government now and the unrestricted access that the government has given to our schools and to, to uh, Planned Parenthood and really controlling what goes on there. And they just want more money. They've abused that money. They just want more and more. The worst one, of course, is Prop 14, which brings billions more into embryonic stem cell research. They got $6 billion after the interest, $6 billion back in 1994 in Prop 
71. They wasted it all. There were no cures. Remember, they were going to have Christopher Reed walk. They were going to have Michael J. Fox cured of Parkinson's. There have been no cures. They're back on the ballot as Prop 14. They want another $5.5 billion. And, it's, it's and of course, that's just sort of the, the yeah. top of the surface of so many other issues related to ballot measures that we're going to need to be voting on this coming November. Complete details available at the California Pro-Life website, californiaprolife.org. That's californiaprolife.org. And I promise you, we will spend some time on the program in the coming weeks, diving into these in depth. I've already had a number of emails, folks asking, when are you going to dive into all the ballot measures? And we will do so again. Meanwhile, Brian, of course, talks about them on his program, Life Matters, Saturday mornings at 11, right here on KFAX, or again online at CaliforniaProLife.org. Look at traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know, ironically, we're going to be talking to a representative from Cal Fire coming up later on in the program tonight to give us an update on the devastating forest fires throughout our state. And we all see it. We know it. We see the damage. Your heart breaks when you hear about the tragic loss of life. You look at pictures on television of places that you like to go with your family on fire up in the Napa Valley, for example. It's heartbreaking. And you hear four million acres nearly destroyed. Unfortunately, in the middle of sort of that backdrop, it's easy to come up with quick answers and solutions that seem to make sense at the time in the heat of the moment that can have long-term devastating burden on California taxpayers and our state. One of them, I suspect, is the recent executive order handed down by the governor that says 15 more years and that's it, folks. You're either driving a, a Volt or a Leaf, they still make those, or helping... Elon Musk send people to Mars by driving a Tesla, but you won't be driving your internal combustion engine anymore. They're evil. And uh, you're going to have to uh, probably ban car use everywhere across the planet to make up for the tons, hundreds of tons of pollutants that the forest fires have put into the air in just the last year. Let's find out just how practical or not is this proposal. Ronald Stein joins us. He's been with us before. He's been in the uh, energy sector as an expert for more than 30 years. He is the founder and ambassador for energy and infrastructure at PTS Advance and has got a new book, Just Green Electricity, Helping Citizens Understand a World Without Fossil Fuels. And Ron, great to have you back on. Great to be back. I'm going to have to, uh, full disclosure here, when I heard the governor, not even make a proposal, hand down his so-called executive order, I thought, you know, I have a suspicion this hasn't been very well thought through, aside from the outrageous expense that it would be for people who can't afford to buy an electric car, because if they would, I would suspect they'd be in one right now. There's the issue of, are we not taking into consideration that those cars need to be charged? in a state that doesn't have enough electricity to even keep the lights on during warm weather. And, and along with that, uh, w what happens to tourism in California? You can't drive to California from Nevada anymore because you won't be able to 
fill up your car because presumably refineries will abandon the state if you can't sell your product here then what's the point it just seems to me that this is a uh, a sledgehammer trying to kill a gnat am i wrong about that you're 100 percent correct the uh his executive order is going to be a a big hammer to uh you know close down and destroy the california economy there's a lot of ramifications he th- he's going to ban the sale of new cars new gas-powered cars what that means is for the people who can't afford one they're just going to continue to re-register their old cars so in 40 or 50 years we're going to look like cuba we have a bunch <laughs> of vintage cars you know polluting the air the end result would probably be more pollution because people would tend like to drive more efficient electric cars and you know the other thing about moving not selling gas for our cars you want people to buy evs well if you know the last 10 or 20 years people have been transitioning away from sedans i drive a sedan when i'm on the freeway i'm the only sedan everybody's driving an suv now most of the evs coming out are sedans because evs are just a small piece of the ev market and they're big need a lot of power they're very expensive and so you're going to try and get all the SUV drivers to move into a sedan? I doubt that's going to happen. And you're right. We have, you know, the other thing, we have 400,000 miles of roads in California. And the fuel taxes have been contributing in excess of $7 billion annually to maintain the roads. Well, we know EV drivers, they don't pay anything to maintain the freeways they're driving on. And so if everybody's going to be transitioning to an EV that the governor wants to, then all the fuel taxes disappear. Well, you've got to come up with $7 billion somewhere, and he hasn't talked about it yet. But look out for the next executive order for the VMT, the vehicle mileage tax. In theory... In theory, it's a great thing. Let the user pay. If you drive on the freeway, you pay for the freeway. But you know, how do you do that? This has been talked about for years. How do you effectively implement that? Do you do odometer readings? In the annual, we got 31 million registered vehicles in California. You're going to do an odometer reading to make sure they're paying their fair share? Wow, that's uh, he's got to think about where he's going to get the revenue to maintain the transportation infrastructure. Yeah, that's going to be a pretty pretty significant uh, amount of infrastructure and bureaucracy to support all that. <laughs> the other issue that comes to mind is, and this is the reality that that repeatedly Sacramento seems to have a disconnect with, and that is the people that can afford an electric vehicle right now, the customers of Elon Musk, are on average people that are earning $150,000, $200,000 a year. Hundred grand for a new Tesla? No problem. We want check or cash. But for the rest of us, and particularly for those who barely eke out a survivable wage in an outrageously expensive state like California, they have no choice but to drive to work. They can't afford a $100,000 electric vehicle. So at the end of the day, some of these draconian measures, albeit at least on the face, attempting to do good, end up having such a 
horrific burden landed squarely on the shoulders of the people that can least afford to carry that burden. Unless the state wants to come in and say, we're going to supplement every car in California, in which case I'll take my, I'll take my Tesla if California wants to buy it for me. <laughs> well, you're right. I think a recent study showed that I think 70% of the respondents have a four-year college degree or a postgraduate degree and have income upwards of $200,000. You have to understand that 45% of the state, now the state's got 40 million people, 45% of the state is 18 million people. 18 million people represent the Hispanic and the African Americans. Now, the average income for Hispanics and blacks is like $55,000. I mean, they're trying to put food on the table. You know, buying a, buying a car is, is kind of out of reach for most of them. Buying an EV that may not meet their needs, that's out of reach. You know, you've seen a lot of communities, a lot of old communities around here that, you know, the people that have EVs generally have a garage. Pull it in, you plug it in. You know, most people have to park on the streets. Park on the street, what do you do? You have a long extension cord? Yeah, and, and you add to that the fact that, as we mentioned, California can barely afford to keep the lights and now on back to when the weather gets a little bit warm. So now what are you going to do when you say to people in the middle of a, of a power outage, rolling blackouts because you're afraid that you can't keep the power on to supply power for electricity, and then somebody says, well, you turn off the power, now I can't charge my car, now I can't go to work, now I can't bring money in to care for my family. I mean, the short-sightedness of all this. And, and, and do me a favor, Ronald, speak, speak to my, my question, too, about vehicles coming in from outside of the state. You know, we've got a lot of industry here. Tourism is one of the big money generators for the state. What are you saying to somebody who drives their internal combustion vehicle from a state like Arizona or Nevada or Oregon, coming here to visit California, and then finds out there's no place to fuel up because all of the service stations have decided it, it's not financially feasible in a state that it's outlawed gas-powered vehicles to sell gasoline here. Then what happens? Well, you're right. If it's inconvenient, they're going to avoid the hassle of trying to do that. And, you know, they may make the decision, well, we'll just go somewhere else. But if I can make a comment on the power aspect of California, now there's Please. a dysfunctional system. You know, in the oh. last couple of years, we, we shut down four power plants. We shut down San Onofre, which served yep. 2 million people. We shut down three natural gas power plants. That's already done. We have five more to shut down. The Diablo Canyon nuclear plant, which serves three million people, is coming down in a couple of years. And there's four natural gas power plants that have been giving a state of execution because of the blackouts, but they are going to come down. So in like less than a decade, we're taking down nine major power plants, and we're not replacing them. You know, last year alone, California could not generate its own power in-state. We had import 32% from the southwest and northwest. And our energy policy is hoping, hoping and praying, that the southwest and northwest can generate enough power for us. If they can't, we're, we're without a light bulb. And, you know, the the other point here with full disclosure, one of the things that also kind of struck in my, my craw when I heard that is California has a huge number of individuals that take pride in in owning, 
restoring classic cars. And uh, I've got a 1941 sitting in my garage. And i got to tell you, the minute you tell me I can't buy gasoline to be able to take my long five-mile late Sunday afternoon um, drive in my car, I, 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 you're, you're, you're going to lose me as a Californian. I'm, I'll look elsewhere. And I wonder how many others would say the same thing. That just This, again, just seems to be so draconian and so short-sighted all at once. I know. Well, one thing about fuel, it would be available. It won't be inexpensive, but it would be available. Because you have to remember, the oil industry is not a California industry with a few refineries. It's not an American industry with a few refineries in the United States. It's an international industry. There's 700 refineries around the world making the fuels, making the oil derivatives that make 6,000 products that are part of our daily lives. You know, someone's going to make it and just ship it in. We'll just pay extra to get it, but it'll it'll come at a premium because it's going to be you know supply and demand. That equation is going to come into reality, but it's you know the one thing that they, they they really harp on the oil and gas industry, but the most important thing that comes out of that industry is not the fuel, not the aviation fuel that runs all the airlines, not the fuel that runs the diesel trucks and the gasoline for the automobiles. The main thing that we get out of the oil industry is the oil derivatives. They make up for 6,000 products in our daily lives. If you think about it, the reason I wrote the book, you know, Just Green Electricity, you know, helping citizens understand a world without fossil fuels, you really have to go back to the 1900s. Before the 1900s, we had no medical industry. We had no transportation. We had no jet engines. We had really no military equipment. No fertilizers, no cosmetics, no electronics. You know, all the electronics today that's allowing us to work from home, it's all made with oil derivatives. And if you go back in history, electricity came after fossil fuels. Because all the parts that make up solar panels, all the parts that make up wind turbines, are made with oil derivatives from crude oil. And if you want to get rid of crude oil, you better turn in your iPhone and turn off your computer because it's not going to yeah. be there. You're, you're to, 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 the, to the heart of your point, there is so much of this that is so short-sighted and so wrong. And, you know, this is the reason why I think the argument to pull the power of the pen away from governors and presidents, for that matter, that abuse the so-called executive order in attempting to do what should be done at the people's level in the legislature in Congress, and then as almost a, 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 a king in a kingdom, hand down orders with no thought whatsoever as to how they're going to be executed or what the repercussions are going to be whatsoever. Ronald Stein, we got to get you back when we got more time here. We just kind of touched okay. on the, the surface here, but I'm going to have my producer get you back. We'll spend more time diving into your new book as well, because clearly there have got to be some reasonable alternatives here that won't shut down the country, cripple the state, while at the same token, doing a better job to care for the environment. Ronald Stein, again, his book, Just Green Electricity, Helping Citizens Understand a World Without Fossil Fuels. And get more information, by the way, online at ptsadvance.com. That's ptsadvance.com. There's Ronald Stein. All right, a look at traffic. Let's get the latest from the KFAX Traffic Center.
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Remarkably shocking numbers, the likes of which we've certainly never seen in our lifetime and pray God we never see again. Since the beginning of this year, there have been over 8,000 wildfires that have burned well over, get this, 3.9 million acres in California alone. To date, sadly, 29 individuals have lost their lives and over 7,200 structures have been destroyed. And as we thought we were kind of getting past some of this, or hoping to be, we've seen once again fires igniting and impacting our beloved Santa Rosa and Napa region. Let's get an update now. Scott McLean joins us, Public Information Officer with Cal Fire. And uh, Scott, you guys sadly just can't get a can't get a break here, can you? No, they can't. These individuals, men and women out there on the line, they've been at it for a lot of cases, 45 days. We've never done that. I mean, the max we usually go out is about 20, 21 days. So it's double that. This year alone as far as all those individuals on the line. We're looking at over 17,000 individuals on the line right now from the state, from the nation, and international. Wow. Absolutely remarkable. And we know certainly there are a number of these fires that uh, are, are relatively new in origin. Um, so talk to us about some of the big ones that are the most concerning right now. Certainly as we're watching the news, uh, what's happening right now in the Napa Valley is heartbreaking. Right. That's one of the ones, as you described, most concerning, uh, just because it's we have the LNU lightning complex. That fire burned around this particular area. So now this fire has come in. It's actually three fires that have joined into one. You've got the the Shady, the Glass, as well as the Boynton fires that have all grown into one. Uh, as of earlier today, it was over 52,000 acres, but the containment started. So we're looking at, uh, like early this morning, it was about 7% containment. Hopefully we'll see some more. Uh, this fire right now is burning in those areas, what we call topography and fuel-driven. The vegetation is extremely receptive to the, the fire, for that matter. And then, unfortunately, now we have a red flag warning that should be starting here very soon in the North Bay as well as in Monterey County, which will affect that particular fire that much more. I talked to one of your colleagues, this is maybe uh, three weeks ago, and at the time she was estimating that the Creek Fire burning down in Fresno would probably mm-hmm. not see it uh, completely exterminated until sometime in October. And uh, that that seems to continuing to, to sadly hold true. What's the containment on that looking like right now, the Creek Fire? Um, yeah, on the Creek Fire, we're looking at 307,000 acres, but it's down about 44% containment. Uh, I just came off the North Complex. That was that is 314,000, but their containment starting to move back up at 79%. So this continues to be a large problem and will be for some time. And uh, the the sense now is the is the weather at all starting to cooperate with you? Not in the North Bay and not in Monterey and a few places down south. As far as the red flag warnings, uh, keep in mind that. Like on the North Complex, it, again, topography has a lot to play. Your winds, as the, the air gets hotter during the course of the day, will go up canyon. And during the night, those, that air will become heavier due to the coldness, and it will race right back down. So we deal with that in those um, mountainous areas and then add the red flag warnings with the higher winds, more winds added to it. It de- definitely makes for what we call an erratic fire behavior, which can be very deadly and very dangerous. 
we really need to take extra, extra precaution. And I know that that we sort of harp on this thing repeatedly uh, of everything from, you know, don't build campfires, don't throw cigarettes out the window, all all of that. But but from the bigger perspective, from your viewpoint, um, just touch on, if you would, some of the top things, Scott, that we as citizens and property owners can and should be doing right now in order to try to make your jobs a bit easier. I'm going to start with the website, readyforwildfire.org. A lot of information as to what you just discussed. You're right. 95% of our wildfires in the state of California are started by humans. That's, you know, accidents. It's not, I'm not talking arson. I'm just talking everyday life. Uh, Parking your car in dry grass, mowing dry grass, and start uh, hitting a rock causing a spark. Because it just takes one spark right now. September and October historically have been the worst two months in the state of California. Uh, until just a few years ago, I'd say 2017, because remember what the fires we saw in the Bay in 2017 and 18, and then again 2020. So we really have to be extra diligent, and things like mm-hmm. clear-cutting brush from around your property, don't barbecue, don't leave a barbecue unattended, and there's all kinds of information available again on the website that um, Scott just mentioned, readyforwildfire.org. That's readyforwildfire.org. Final question for you, Scott. Some people, and we see them profiled on television all the time, that that decide they want to be heroes. They can't imagine their home burning down, so they stay behind and try to fight these fires by themselves. Does that help or hinder your job? That definitely hinders our job. I understand. Let's put it this way. 30 people have died so far this year on wildfire, due to wildfires, 85 on the campfire in 2018 alone. We're dealing with fires that expand exponentially. The North Complex, 200,000 acres growth in just a few hours on that particular fire. Berry Creek, Brush Creek, uh, Feather Falls, those small mountain communities, all completely gone. Uh, and again, 15 individuals died on that fire. You just don't have the time to escape on these mountain roads in these certain areas. You need to pay attention to the weather. You need to pay attention to law. If law says evacuation warning, you better be prepared. And if you don't feel comfortable, I ask that you leave then. Evacuation orders, you need to leave, please. Yeah, and, and be mindful, if if the professionals with all the heavy equipment have a difficult time anticipating the behavior of these fires that sometimes even create their mm-hmm. own weather and have a mind of their own, if the pros struggle with containing it, what do you think you're going to do with a garden hose wearing flip-flops in your backyard? <laughs> all you're going to do is slow it down, likely it's going to burn down anyway, and sadly, regretfully, as Scott just pointed out, you may go with it. So be smart, be safe, get educated, take the right precautionary steps, change your behavior. Information on the web, readyforwildfire.org. That's ready for wildfire, for spelled out F-O-R, readyforwildfire.org. And our thanks to Scott McLean, Public Information Officer with Cal Fire, for that sad, tragic update. Wow. All right, six to four. Let's get a lake, uh, a look at a lake. Get, we need a lake. Dump, dump a lake on the fires. Let's get a look at traffic right now while I figure out 
how to speak English. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 